Well, I'm so thankful that you were here, whether in person, watching online, or listening later in the week on a podcast. Thank you for joining our study of the book of Revelation. We're almost through. We have today's teaching, and then next weekend we will wrap up our study looking at chapter 21 and chapter 22, the new heavens and the new earth. And I am excited about the new heavens and the new earth. I was thinking about that even yesterday. I spent the afternoon with a shovel trying to get some unwanted growth out of our flower beds. And I was sweating. I was hot. My back started to hurt. I wore an ugly blister on my left hand. And then the thought came to me, you know, in the new heaven and new earth, I'm going to have a new body and it's going to be young and strong and I'm not going to hurt like this. And then the thought came to me, wait a second, in the new heaven and new earth, there aren't going to be weeds. So I'm just going to spend all day playing golf. I'm excited about the new heaven and new earth. But before you can get to chapter 21 and chapter 22, you have to deal with chapter 19 and chapter 20. And I have been excited about that and I've been dreading that. Because I think chapters 19 and 20 are some of the most exciting, hopeful chapters in the whole Bible. And yet I appoint... I approach them not just with anticipation, but hesitation. And here's why. I dislike controversy. I detest division. And I especially deplore unnecessary controversies that produce division. And that is the sad result of much of the modern debate about something called the millennium. In chapter 20 of Revelation. Now, the word millennium is not even in your Bible. But the idea of a thousand year reign is. And if I could sum up in one sentence current thought on the millennium, I would put it this way. The millennium is 1,000 years of peace that Christians like to fight about. I don't think, though, that John gave us this vision to incite fights. I think it is to inspire faith. And so I'm hoping today that we can move past, huh, and we can get to hallelujah, because I think that's the real message of these chapters. So we got a lot to cover. Let's jump right in. Let's just go ahead and tackle the biggest problem first, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, And holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Let me stop right there. Right off the bat, we know this is figurative language. You don't chain a spiritual being with a physical element. So whatever else is going on, John is saying, I'm going to give you a picture. Get the point of the picture. So he threw him into the abyss. And he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. And not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now this is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And in number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, you've heard me use this word recapitulation a lot. In Revelation, John loves to take a scene and give you several angles. So he tells a story, and then he tells the exact same story over with a different angle. He keeps doing that with the end of the world. In particular, there are three big enemies in Revelation. You've got Rome, you've got the beasts, and you've got Satan. So in chapter 17 and 18, he's going to end the world getting rid of Rome. In chapter 19, he's going to end the world getting rid of the beasts. And in chapter 20, he's going to get rid of Satan. Now, don't read those chapters chronologically. You'll have problems. For example, at the end of chapter 19, when he gets rid of the beast, he gets rid of all the enemies of God. They are all gone. But in chapter 20, there are the nations to be deceived again. They're back. So the point is not that this is a chronological story, but this is a theological message about God and the future for the people of God. And in that message, you have this image of a thousand-year reign. Now, there have been a number of interpretations. The two earliest were that the thousand-year reign is speaking of the church age. It's a figure for that time from the coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, and we're in it now. The other early interpretation of the church is that the thousand years is going to be when Jesus comes back to reign on the earth. The first was called the ah-millennial, and the second the pre-millennial position. Now, during the age of the Enlightenment, a third interpretation arose called post-millennialism. In other words, the world would get better, mankind would improve, and there would be a thousand years of peace on the earth, then Jesus would come back. And then less than 200 years ago, a fourth popular interpretation came up called dispensational premillennialism. It started in England with a man named Darby. The Schofield Bible made it popular. This is the view that there's going to be a rapture. There's going to be more than one resurrection of the saints. There's going to be a great time of tribulation. It's the newest view, but it's probably the most popular right now. If you've read the Left Behind books, that's the view that's being taught. Now, sincere Bible-believing people hold all these views. In every denomination and in every church, including our own. I think I would not have integrity if I didn't give you my personal view. I hold the ah millennial interpretation at the current time. I don't like that label. It literally means not millennium. I believe in a millennium. I just happen to believe that we are currently in that time that this passage is talking about. And I'll give you some reasons. One, we've seen in Revelation, you've got to be careful with numbers. Numbers in Revelation are not measured, they're weighed. They stand for something. 666, 144,000. The number 1,000 is a symbol for completion, not just in Revelation, but in the Bible. When the Bible says the cattle on a 1,000 hills belong to the Lord. That means all the cattle do, not just the cattle on a 1,000 hills. When God says... I will keep my covenant to the thousandth generation. 
He doesn't mean after that I can break my promise. It's a way of saying I will keep my covenant forever. So thousand tends to stand for something that is complete and fulfills God's purposes. Another problem I have is with this idea of more than one bodily resurrection. Jesus said in John 5 that when he gives the command, the righteous and the wicked, all will rise from the graves bodily to meet Jesus for judgment. I do believe in two resurrections in this sense. I believe that when you die, you immediately go to be with the Lord in your soul. And notice it says, the souls were reigning. In fact, remember back in Revelation 6, the souls under the altar were saying, how long, O Lord? So I do believe immediately you are raised in the sense that your soul goes to be with the Lord. But your body waits for the coming of Jesus. And where are they reigning? I'm not sure it's on the earth. It doesn't say that. In fact, throne is a huge word in Revelation. 47 times. Now, 43 times, clearly, the thrones are good. Either God's or Christ's or the elders. Three times, they're clearly bad. Satan or the beast. Every time the throne is good, it's in heaven. Every time it's bad, it's on the earth. So when it says these souls are reigning on thrones, where do you think they might be? Now, these are just some thoughts. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just kind of telling you where I'm thinking. And here's the biggest reason I support the amillennial understanding. And that is the weight that it gives to the Christ event. In other words, I believe the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus limits Satan now, not Later, I believe something happened in the ministry of Jesus that was a cosmic game changer. I think Jesus taught that. He's casting out demons and his critics say, you're doing that because you're in league with the devil. He says, are you crazy? A house divided against itself can't stand. And then he said, Matthew 12, but if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Jesus says, the only reason I can cast out demons, the only reason I can plunder the people Satan has stolen is because I've tied him up. It's the exact word used in Revelation when it says that Satan was bound. Jesus says, my kingdom is coming now in the present. And proof of it is that I have tied up Satan. And Revelation 12, Jesus is born. He ascends into heaven. And it says, then there was a war and Satan was hurled down after the ministry of Jesus. Exact same word in Revelation 20 when it says he was thrown into the abyss. Jesus' ministry changed something in the cosmic war. Colossians 2, 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Hebrews says that we don't have to be afraid to die anymore. We were held in slavery to our fear of death, to the devil, but not anymore because of Jesus. And so 
I'm believing that somehow Jesus' ministry has limited, or maybe I would use the word incarcerated Satan, but it hasn't eradicated him. When they put Paul in prison, it limited his ministry, but it didn't end it. Satan is still able to do damage. But he can't stop the gospel from going to every nation. He can't surround the church and destroy it like he wants to do. I hear preachers say, you know, the church is just one generation away from extinction. No, it's not. Because Jesus won't let devil do that to his church. In fact, you remember just a month ago I told you about one of our missionaries. They're in a country where Christians are persecuted and the government does nothing about it. I told you how one of the house churches was surrounded by a mob of 700 people with stones threatening the Christians. And they had to break up the church. Well, they broke it up into eight small house churches. I got an email this week. Those eight small house churches in one month have grown to 16 small house churches. And the pastor is having trouble finding enough people to lead the house churches because the church is growing so fast. Because this is what happens when Satan attacks Jesus' church because Jesus is Lord. Now, this is my current understanding. I think it has the fewest problems. But it does have problems. I'm much more in agreement with the premillennial thinking that God has an intention and a future and intends to reclaim the earth. That the prophets talking about God's kingdom on the earth is true. And I'll talk more about that next week. I'm also thinking the premillennial position has a more robust understanding that there's a cosmic war going on. And this world's not going to end with a whimper but with a bang because an enemy is going to have to be attacked and defeated to bring about the future God wants. Here's the bottom line. I don't care what your position is on the millennium. I can take the other side and give you problems. Now think about this. If the greatest scholars of the day had all the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus and they still got it wrong. Do you think maybe some theological humility is in order as we try to understand the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus? Because bottom line, we are all pro-millennial. No matter what your position is, you're for the millennium. And I am too. You realize this is the only passage in the Bible where the millennium is mentioned. We give it a lot more attention than the Bible does. And frankly, a lot more focus than a lost world needs. Because I don't care what your view is. When you meet a lost person, the first thing you say is not, let me teach you about the thousand-year reign. Hopefully, the first and last thing you say is, let me teach you about Jesus. It's okay to disagree on this. It is sin to divide. We need to move from the planning committee to the welcoming committee on this question. In fact, I think this text, it was meant... To be experienced almost more than to be exegeted. These chapters are supposed to thrill us and make us feel something. More than we're supposed to just diagram and dissect the words. Maybe that's why this teaching is preceded by the only place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. Let me show you chapter 19 verse 1. 
And after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for I, Lord God Almighty, reigns. In a sense, the whole Bible has been waiting for this. The end of the war, the vindication, and the reign of the king, the universal acknowledgement of the glory God is due. Heaven explodes in worship thinking about this, and we should too, because we are all in the hallelujah chorus. And so, friends, when we worship like we have today, We are making a public declaration that God is on the throne, that he owns the future, and God wins. And that's the message I want you to get today. Don't focus on a mysterious image and miss this glorious message. Because no matter how it goes down, you're going to like it. No matter how it ends, no matter what Jesus does, we're going to like it. We're not going to say, huh? We're going to sing hallelujah. Now, I'm about to teach you why you need to be a hallelujah chorus member. And I got a problem. My problem is we are an overwhelmingly white church. White churches don't know how to hallelujah. I'm going to give you a chance to practice. Starting in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now, the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. First reason to hallelujah. We are invited to the best ever wedding. The Bible starts with a divorce in a garden. And it ends with a wedding in a garden city. And you've been to weddings. And what's cool about weddings, every wedding is a public statement that we believe in a better future. And God's planning a wedding, and it's going to be a big party. They're going to come from every tribe and color and tongue, but there will be no wedding crashers. You're going to be there not because you're deserved, but because you've been invited. You've been blessed, and you have been dressed. You've been given a white robe to wear. Now, back in chapter 7 of Revelation, we read... They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our robes are white because of Jesus' blood. But then 
There in chapter 19, it says that the white robes are the righteous acts of the saints. Now, that's confusing. I thought we go to heaven because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. But you have to admit, Revelation talks a lot about deeds. And all those seven letters, Jesus said, I know your deeds. In chapter 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They'll rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Or look later in chapter 20 of our text today, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. So what's going on? Now I want you to remember... Revelation is written to churches under fire. If you said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, you weren't just making a statement. You were making a costly commitment. Go back to chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. It is by the blood of Jesus that you have any hope of victory over the devil. But notice, and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, those robes that have been washed in the blood of Christ need to be worn in public. I wear a wedding ring. I want you to know I'm married. I go public with the fact that I am a married person. What the vision is saying is you've been given robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Put them on. Don't be ashamed of them. In the very next chapter, there's a long list of people who are not going to be in heaven. Now, you'd expect murderers, liars, sexually immoral to be on that list, and they are. But the very first thing on that list, but... The cowardly. The cowardly will not be at the wedding. It's the job of the bride to put on her gown. To make herself ready. I've done lots of weddings. Never once in that moment when we all stand and the music starts. And we turn to the back and the doors open. Does someone come out and say, bride's not ready yet. Doesn't have her gown on. But even the gown, the bold, faithful testimony you give to Jesus, even that's a gift. They were given white robes to wear. Do you realize that even your faith, your courage, your testimony, your confidence, your assurance, your boldness, your witness, even these are graces from Jesus. They all come from Jesus. Because the cool thing is at this wedding, the focus is going to be on the groom. Now that's different. You have never checked out at a grocery store, looked at the magazine rack, and seen groom magazine. (laughs) But at this wedding, it's all about the groom. He paid for the wedding. He planned the wedding. He invited you to the wedding. But before he could do anything about the wedding, 
He had to win a war. What image comes to your mind when you hear the name Jesus? I think in popular culture, there are three that are most popular. One is baby Jesus. Baby Jesus is very popular. He's cute. He's adorable. He gives us a day off from work, and he doesn't ask us to do anything. The second most popular view is hippie Jesus. We've all seen pictures of hippie Jesus. He's got long hair with lots of product in it. He's got blue eyes, even though he's a Jew. Very cool robe, very cool sandals. He sits on a rock with a lamb in his lap, and he teaches his disciples to recycle. We've all seen hippie Jesus. And the last few is whipped Jesus. Beaten, emaciated, weak, pathetic. But the very last view of Jesus in the Bible is warrior Jesus. Look with me, 19 verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Side point. I've read a lot of material, people trying to figure out that name. Now, I'm no scholar, but if he's the only one that knows it, he's the only one that knows it. (laughs) Save the paper. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, he's not just invited you to the best ever wedding, but he has decided the last ever battle. Satan has always been the real problem. He's the problem behind all the other problems. And he's got hell to pay. And it's significant that Jesus is riding a white horse. Now, Our modern-day audiences might miss the significance, but John's audience would not. Because in that day, the king would wear and ride the white horse after the battle. After he won, to show that he conquered, he'd come back into town in a parade on a white horse. But Jesus is on the white horse before the battle. How come? He's already won it. It's already decided. He is coming to consummate the reign. He's already inaugurated and he's already validated. That's why there's blood on the road before the battle. It's his blood. He won this war at Calvary. And it's not going to be ended because he's got better tanks or bigger helicopters. He's got sword in his mouth. He's got word power. The word that created everything can destroy anything if he speaks. And so he comes and he speaks and John does it again. He gets us all amped up to read about this great battle and there's no battle. Jesus opens his mouth and it's over and Satan is gone. It says verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of 
burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And friend, let me just tell you, on that day, you want to be behind Jesus watching. You do not want to be in front because on that day, he is going to eradicate every force, every king, every demon, every factor that opposed and subverted his reign. They will be removed forever, including the last enemy. You say, well, I thought the devil was the last enemy. Oh, no. One more thing has to happen before we can have the future God wants. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Because this God that has invited you to the wedding, he's, he's won the last ever battle. This God is committed to a curse, never future. Now, I don't have to tell you the curse is all around it. You don't have to read the headlines to know the curse is all around us. Every time you see a child with a birth defect. Every time the doctor calls and says, you need to come into my office and we need to talk. Every time you hear about a sweet older person in the early stages of Alzheimer's, you know. The curse is real. It's in us. It's in the planet. But it's not staying. Because God owns us. He owns his creation. And God intends to keep what he owns. He is not going to let one single atom of his creation be marred by the enemy. The reign of death will end. The rule of life will begin. And a new normal is on the way. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself. But I have to jump into chapter 21 for a second. Because here's what it means. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That means every ruler... And every defect and every disease and every grave is going to declare that Jesus is the King of Kings. And the church says, Amen. Now you know that I think the Revelation is an incredibly practical book. You've heard me say it's not for making charts, it's for making choices. And so here's the choice and the challenge for today. Are you living the hallelujah life yet? You're not supposed to be waiting for the hallelujah life. You're supposed to be embracing it now. 
Are you letting Satan, that imposter who is doomed, reign in any part of your life? Why? Call his bluff. Rebuke his lies. Remind him of his future. And claim your identity as a citizen of the King of Kings. And we live in a world still cursed. But we cope with hope. It's okay to groan. We're allowed to groan. But we don't gripe. There's enough whining in the world already. There needs to be the witness of a people who know how to be a part of a hallelujah chorus. Because we have seen the future and we like it. And so, for example... Some years ago, I was with my father and brother at a hospital in Plano. My mom was having exploratory surgery for a constant pain in her abdomen. The doctor said it would take two hours. He came out in 30 minutes. I've been to enough hospitals. I knew exactly what that meant. He said, there's cancer everywhere. We just closed her up. There's nothing we can do. Mom's in post-op. She's coming too. My father, my brother, and I are there. For the second time in my life, I'm seeing my father cry. And I realize he can't tell her. So I walked around and I took mom's hand as she's waking up. I said, mom, we didn't get the news we wanted. It's cancer. The doctor says, you're in for a tough fight. And she looked at me. She said, I can do that. And then she said, You know, Rick, either way, I win. I'm not going to argue with you about how you think it's going to go down at the end. I'm going to stand with you and say, hallelujah. A day is coming when we don't ever again have to have a prayer service for cancer. Where children never again have to hear that their parents are splitting up. Where we never again have to worry about terrorists or explosions. Where every tear is going to be dried. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to wipe our eyes. And all I know to say Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Father, I'm asking now. In Jesus' name, that you would give us the faith and courage to step into this new reality, this real future. Help us to live it now. To be a part of a hallelujah chorus. To have a testimony so winsome, so strong, so courageous. That others beg us to know how they can be invited to the wedding too. Increase our hope day for tomorrow in Jesus name amen let's all stand and again church leaders are going to be down front to pray with you to receive you to bless you and to take those who are ready to join Jesus to put on the gown and to publicly declare him come do that you can do it in the act of baptism it is a public declaration you want to be the bride come do that now while we worship the Lord.